Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Uh, we hope our listeners had a good Thanksgiving. This is our first show back from the holiday, and tonight we're going to talk about some transactions that the Orioles have made, including the uh, waiver wire acquisition of left-handed reliever CNL Perez, along with some transactions they haven't made uh, amid the possibly looming MLB lockout that could happen this week. All of that and more will be on tonight's episode, but first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we'll start off with the move that the Orioles made recently, which was to pick up left-hander CNL Perez off waivers from the Cincinnati Reds. That acquisition puts the Orioles' 40-man roster at 40 players exactly, and this is a pitcher with a pretty interesting background. Uh, he was signed by the Astros in 2016 out of Cuba. Uh, at the time, was seen as a pitcher that could move quickly and could end up being one of their top prospects. He did get to the majors in 2018, but has posted uneven results um, in parts of the last four seasons. His time with the Reds last year when he pitched 24, 24 innings of relief was the longest chunk of time that he has spent in the major leagues. And the numbers at first glance don't look great. 6-3 ERA, walked 20 batters in 24 innings pitched. However, there are some interesting things. He has a fastball that does hit 96 miles an hour. He generates a lot of ground balls. Um, and Nick, who wrote a piece recently on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com that focused on some of the Orioles' recent waiver wire acquisitions, wrote about Perez a little bit. So I'm going to turn this over to you, Nick. Just your thoughts on this pickup and how much upside is there here for the Orioles? Yeah, not a lot of uh, things to write about over here uh, in Birdland right now. But uh, yeah, Perez was interesting. I think of the three waiver claims, that's the only new additions we have in the Orioles roster. I like Perez the most. I think he has the highest upside. Uh, you know, looking around, I saw a lot of Reds fans, you know, saying like, good, he's gone is kind of like, the Orioles fans, if DJ Stewart were to leave, like there's a lot of good. It's great. He's finally gone. He's off the roster. Uh, but a lot of, you know, smarter uh, Reds writers and, and uh, podcasters and such that I was looking around for their opinions. They were kind of stunned to see Perez leave. They really liked him. I think there is upside here a little bit. Um, you know, he doesn't have options, so he doesn't have that roster flexibility. So it's going to be harder for him to stick around. But I mean, like you mentioned, the ERA is terrible. The walks are horrendous. That's the big issue. Uh, almost eight walks per nine. Uh, but, you know, good ground ball numbers, not a lot of movement on the fastball. If you look at his baseball savant numbers, uh, with those 24 innings, you got some good data there. Uh, not a lot of you know movement there, a little bit of sync, which helps produce the ground balls, but it's the slider. That's the pitch that a lot of people have talked about, how lethal that slider is. And, I mean, opponents last year, uh, what they do I have to pull up the numbers there. Uh, da, 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 the slider, twenty eight percent of the time. So he could probably throw that a little bit more. Uh, opponents hit just one fifty against it and had a forty percent whiff rate against his slider. 
So, I mean, if, if that plays well, maybe more sliders, uh, fewer fastballs, clean up that command. There might be a little bit something there, but it's it's interesting. He's got upside. It's something. This is Michael last guy, so you know he's going to be given every single opportunity he can to stick around, even without the options. Yeah, Sim contributes as Felix Bautista part two. I think it's part three because Brian Baker was part two. But yeah, it seems to be a trend in the in the people added to the forty man right now. But I like the move. Uh, Mike Elias is working on the edges of the forty man roster right now. You know, not make every every uh, team's podcast is talking about the big splashes they made in free agency. We're talking about a waiver claim we made last week, but uh, I do like him. He's got some good numbers in AAA. He's got good ground ball percentage over fifty percent, good strikeout percentage over twenty. Like Nick said, it's all about those walks, and you know, using that slider more. Hopefully, we'll get more swings and misses, and could be a Paul Fry replacement. We'll see what happens with him with the non-tender deadline coming up very soon, and uh. Yeah, I think he's got a chance to help the bullpen this year for sure, but there's also a chance that he could be DFA'd at some point later on this offseason. Yeah, it's always hard to tell waiver claims they're going to stick around, and there isn't much roster flexibility here. I would give Perez a decent shot at making the roster right now just because the Orioles really have not done much to address their pitching and the fact that he is out of options, whereas most of the other pitchers are sort of on that fringe between making the major league bullpen or starting your back at Norfolk, have at least one option left. So that could end up, you know, playing a factor into what end up being a factor in what decision the Orioles make, especially if, you know, Perez is close between two or three other arms in spring training as to who's going to get a spot in the bullpen. Yeah. The only thing else with Perez that make you say, uh, I'm not entirely sure is like with Paul Fry, he was that good, like reverse splits guy. So he was good against righties. Uh, Perez was not last year in Cincinnati at the major league level, at least. I mean, the batting average was like 20 points higher against righties. Uh, the whip, he had a 1.39 whip against lefties, but a 1.91 against right-handed hitters. Uh, right-handers hit him pretty well. But I mean, overall, like you look at the, you know, barrel contact, average exit velos, those aren't really bad at all for Perez. So guys didn't really hit him hard. They just, it was easy to get on base <laughs> against him with a near 20% walk rate. So I mean, that's that's horrendous, but, you know, the walks also weren't that bad in AAA. They were more what you'd see from major league relievers. So maybe it's maybe he's just a, a 4A guy, which could be the case. That's probably the most likely scenario. He's just a classic 4A guy. But if the Orioles are able to do something, then they got somebody from a waiver claim that can contribute. Yeah, I was going to say it will this year will determine if he's a 4A guy or if he's a guy who just needs his things to click a little bit more and hopefully Chris Holt and and company, Michael Elias, they can get back on the same page as them, could maybe uh, turn that page a little bit, but we'll, I think we'll find out. So we'll move on now to talk about the non-tender deadline, which was moved up to Tuesday, November 30th, so that's tomorrow. Uh, with the likelihood that we will uh, be facing a lockout this week, later this week, uh, the league and the Players Association decide to move that deadline up so that it could take place before the expiration of the current collective bargaining agreement. We talked about possible non-tenders a few months ago on this show, and there have been a lot of changes since then as Pat Vileka and Pedro Severino were DFA'd, taken off the 40-man roster, and in fact, Severino has since signed with the Brewers, so we know that that chapter is closed. But there are still some players that seem to be on that bubble or where the Orioles are going to have to decide whether to make major financial commitments relative to their payroll. Uh, for next year. So Trey Mancini, John Means, Anthony Santander, 
Paul Fry, Jorge Lopez, Tanner Scott are among the players where the Orioles will have to make a decision uh, here over the next 24 hours. A lot of them, if not most of them, are likely to stay put, but there still could be a few moves. And I'll turn this over to Bob. Just seeing how things look right now, do you think that anyone out of that group is non-tendered or perhaps even traded before the deadline happens? And if so, who could it be? I think the more and more the offseason goes on, the more I think Paul Fry is going to be non-tendered. Uh, I just don't think, you know, he had a great first half of the season, but he struggled mightily in the second half, couldn't even get it together in AAA. And it seems like they've brought in some guys that maybe could at least match what he was doing in the second half of the year. At least it'd be hard not to. Um, and I'm really nervous that Trey Mancini is going to get non-tendered if they can't find a trade partner for him. And I don't want to be around when that happens uh, for Orioles Twitter, but I, it just makes me nervous. $8 million. It seems like that for the Orioles is more than uh, Corey Seager's making from the Rangers. So Jorge Lopez, I think is another option to be non-tendered, but I do think he gets another shot to, uh, to make it into bullpen for the, for the Orioles next year. Yeah. Trey Mancini, uh, no matter what happens, that's going to be a, a, uh, I'll keep it clean. Uh, we haven't had to put the explicit tag on an episode yet. Um, I think everyone left on the roster that is our eligible is going to get tendered a contract, except Paul Fry. Like, I like Baker and Perez better, um, who the Orioles, you know, just got off waivers. I don't see anything that tells me that like Paul Fry is going to be able to figure things out and turn things around next year. This is what happens with relievers. Um, they come and go quickly. And, you know, if we don't know if anyone came calling uh, for Fry at last year's uh, trade deadline, but if they did, like the Orioles really missed that opportunity because he didn't even finish the year in the major leagues and he couldn't strike guys out in AAA. He couldn't get anybody out in AAA. He had an ERA of like almost eight. He walked more guys than he struck out there uh, with the tides. So, I mean, if, yeah, you could say $1.1 million is its estimated salary. Like, is that a lot? Absolutely not. Um, you can find two pieces for that price, uh, honestly. That would give you Paul Fry production. So I don't see the Orioles paying $1.1 million for that. Um, Jorge Lopez, I really want to see him stick around in the bullpen. And I know Brandon Hyde loves him. And I know a lot of people around the organization do love Jorge Lopez. I know a lot of Orioles fans like him when he's in the bullpen or only going like three innings as a starter. But do does the front office like Jorge Lopez? Because if not, then I could see him being non-tendered as well. But Paul Fry, I think, is the definite one. Right now, he's probably our number three starter. <laughs> so True. True. Yeah, Fry, I kind of felt like when the Orioles sent him down to AAA just about a month after the trade deadline, I sort of took that as a sign that there probably was not a lot of interest. Because if there was any sort of bit of tangible interest just a few weeks before that, why would you send him down to AAA? Why not bury him in a low-leverage role in the bullpen and see if he can figure it out in the major leagues over the last month of the season? So I, I agree. I think that he's going to get non-tendered. Lopez, I think, is a close call, and I won't be surprised either way, but my personal viewpoint is that they should bring him back in a relief role next year, and something tells me they're going to do that because they made that move late in the year, seemingly setting the stage for him to transition to a bullpen role full-time in 2022. And the early results over a small sample size were really promising until he got hurt. If Lopez had finished out with a strong September, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Yeah, I agree. And that's a good point about Fry and getting sent down and all that. I think I think that's definitely the case. Maybe the interest was more in Tanner Scott than Paul Fry. And 
and that's why we didn't see the deal. Could you either of you see a scenario where Orioles fans are maybe as we as every fan of every team does, maybe we're overvaluing a guy like Santander a little bit and uh, the Orioles are not going to be able to move him. Maybe they've tried to trade him. They don't. And he's what, almost four million dollars, I think. Could he be a non-tender candidate? And they keep DJ Stewart around. I think they have to at least value him. Four million is not a lot of money. I have to feel. I mean, it's possible. We are fanatics for a reason, but uh, I think four million dollars is reasonable. Even if he only gives you the the numbers he gave you last year with the upside that he showed in twenty twenty, it's worth it. If if he's not worth it, then we're in big trouble. Yeah, they should tender him a contract. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't be entirely shocked if he wasn't if he was non-tendered i just see this very unlikely and i think he should be tendered a contract because if he gets you 2019 numbers for four million dollars that's fine there's not a lot of long-term trade value there so it makes the decision in 2022 hard but i think for right now you bring him back um and as i've said before put him out in right field see what he does and you pull the trigger on a change there when Kyle Stowers shows that he's ready uh, to take over every day in right field and Santander has either built up enough trade value that you can move him or has struggled enough that putting him on the bench for the rest of the season and moving on from DJ Stewart most likely at that point um, is a feasible option. And, you know, Nick, I know we talked about this a lot on the last show and you've mentioned his name several times tonight. My guess right now is that DJ Stewart is going to be on the opening day roster, but we'll see. Yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, yeah, I think you just got to hope Santander, Santander starts up hot and someone likes what they see and, and they make an offer for him. And hopefully Robert Newstrom's still sticking around or Stowers is ready by then. Yeah. Or DJ Stewart's ready. I'm just trying to throw stuff out there and expect chaos. That's a, I think, honestly, it's going to be like pretty quiet over the next day. What do we got? Day 48 hours, a little less than 48 hours, whatever, to lockdown. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty quiet from the Orioles' front, but expect the unexpected for the Big Brother fans out there. Hey, that's me. <laughs> so this is actually a good transition uh, to a listener question we got in our Patreon group chat from uh, Vivek. Given that the lockout is imminent, which move do you foresee in the next 48 hours? And I'll start with uh, Bob on this. Yeah, you know, all these signings the last two days, they say it's because, you know, it takes about 48 hours to finalize the contracts and do the physicals and all that. So that's why there's a flurry of free agent signings right now. But I'm wondering if the uh, Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be when it's time to do some trades and uh, get that action done before the, the lockout. So I wouldn't be surprised if once uh, tomorrow hits and the non-tender deadline passes, if you might see a flurry of trades. And hopefully the Orioles will be a part of that. So we have something to talk about next week. So that's what I would expect. Yeah, that's what I had down. I said, I don't think it's going to be a free agent signing. I think the Orioles are going to wait until the dust settles and you can resume activities again or roster activity uh, to you know pick off the, the scrap heap there. But I do think maybe a trade happens. Uh, maybe this is where they get a backstop, some sort of veteran backstop in a trade. I, I don't know. I know Jacob Stallings, I think, was just moved before we came on. And I was he was a name. He's a guy that I've enjoyed watching. I wouldn't mind if the Orioles traded for him but it seemed like the, the he went to miami i think miami gave up a, a fairly hefty haul for him so um yeah i think it's going to be a trade but like a minor trade maybe that backup catcher to eventually adley rutschman or 
some sort of like back end rotation starter. Maybe they swing a trade for, I don't know, but it's not going to be anything super major. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking too. I'm not expecting anything major to happen. And I think that if they do address the rotation and free agency, it's going to be sometime after the lockout ends, because what we're seeing in free agency right now is this flurry of uh, signings. And most of your top starters on the market are gone. Kevin Gosman signed, Robbie Ray is signed, Max Scherzer is signed. I think Marcus Stroman's probably the best starting pitcher left on the free agent market. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure if I'm missing anybody, but he would be out of the Orioles' price range anyways. So, you know, I think that they'd probably make a move sometime after the lockout to add to the rotation if they're going to do it. I do think that we'll see, you know, possibly some non-tenders like we just talked about. Maybe a trade, and it's Michael Elias. So you got to expect that there's going to be some waiver claim somewhere along the line, uh, yeah, to add to the friends of this roster. Cedric yeah, Mullins is getting traded, right? That, that's yeah, and Jeremy, yeah, I think we know by now Michael Elias doesn't care what the fans think. He's going to do what he thinks is best and stick to that. But how how fast do you think the Orioles sign Matthew Boyd after he's non-tendered by the Tigers? That seems like it's right up our alley. No, for him to give up like uh oh what Dan Straley, like 2.0 over here with the home runs. Uh I don't know. I had Matt Matt Boyd is a no for me just because I went like two or three years with thinking that he was gonna be some sort of like value fantasy play on my fantasy team, and uh that was a disaster. So I'm good. Yeah, that solid half season in there, didn't he? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I wanted to really like him though. When I saw that name, my first thought was, oh yeah, that's happening. But, yeah, I think the home runs are a big issue with him. And if you're a home run pro guy, I don't want you – you're not going to turn that around in Baltimore. So. Yeah, I agree. I actually think that if a Tiger comes to the Orioles um, sometime in the next in the next 48 hours, it will probably be Grayson Grenier because he did this hit free agency. So there's your one of your possible catcher options. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I agree with Nick. I think that the home runs are a little bit of a concern with him. And tandem yards is not the place to turn that around. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew Burke said, do we really need five lefties in a rotation? I don't think it really matters if your starters are left and right, but it would be interesting to have all lefties. It's something different, at least. Give us Orioles an identity. Yeah. John Means, Keegan Aiken, Bruce Zimmerman, Boyd. Alexander Wells, Zach Lothar, Matthew and, Boyd. <laughs> and Alex Wells, you got Bauman in the bullpen. Uh, Bradish will come up. He'll be in the bullpen. And uh, Grayson Rodriguez, closer midseason. <laughs> there, there we go. This is a 71 team. And we're going to crack that 14 team playoff. Here we go. 14 AL uh, teams, right? <laughs> we need something to talk about. That's what we need. We need <laughs> yeah, actually. we really do. <laughs> oh, man. So let's. Um, Go uh, another question from Vivek here. With a roster at 40 uh, players, who's getting DFA? So you have two spots open for the Rule 5 draft. And I'll tack a question onto this, which is how many roster spots are the Orioles actually going to go into the Rule 5 draft with? And Ben, who is also in the Patreon chat, asked a very similar question, which is do you think the Orioles will select one or two guys in the Rule 5 draft? I'll start with Nick here. Uh, I said last week or last episode, I think I said the Orioles are going to take one, but they're going to go in with space for two. I think you don't know how it's going to shake out. If there's another guy swings around back in the second round, 
that you had high on your list that you want to take a flyer on, of course, the Orioles are going to take them. Uh, so you're going to leave space for at least two. I say they take one. And I mean, you got guys like I think Paul Fry gets non-tendered. So there's one. Um, you know, the three waiver claim guys, do all three make it? I don't think so. I think at least one, maybe they try to slip one of those through waivers and they get claimed. So there's one, there's two gone at least. Um, you know, looking at the infield, what did I say? We talked about this last week. Richie Martin could be a DFA candidate if the Orioles like Fox. Uh, that could be one. And then I don't know, there's there's a lot of outfielders on there. Does Jorge Mateo stick around? I don't know. I know a lot of Orioles fans like him, uh, but, you know, we'll see. I think those are the the easy ones, probably, and maybe another reliever out of the, the, the Kresge or one of those guys, probably Crable. One of those guys. We'll see if both of them can make it or not. Yeah, I think they'll only pick one player in rule five, rule five draft, like uh, Nick says, but they'll leave two spots open just in case someone slips through the cracks there. And then they also have to make room for two catchers on the forty man. So let's see, we got four four guys we got to get it rid of. Richie Martin, we hardly knew ye. Uh, Brooks Krisky, see you later. Paul Fry is uh, non-tendered. And one more, I guess. Uh, let's give the fans a break and get DJ Stewart out of here. I think that they're going to definitely go into the Rule 5 drafts with two, at least two spots open, perhaps more than that, because like Bob said, they're going to have to get two catchers added to the 40-man at some point this offseason. And then there's that longer, this is more of a long-term thing, but when Adley Rutschman goes on the 40-man, are you taking a catcher off the 40 man or are you taking someone else off the 40 man and carrying three catchers? That's, you know, a, a separate discussion though. But my guess would be for right now that they are going to take two players in the rule five draft just because we have seen Michael Elias do that before. And I think that having, you know, likely having the top pick there probably is going to be someone when they pick the second time around, that they maybe had fairly high, you know, on their list that is available to them. I just think that it's likely there is someone sitting there, especially, and, you know, this will be part of our discussion eventually when we can talk about the Rule 5 draft. Um, there actually are a decent amount of catchers available this year. So that could be how one of those spots is filled. Yeah, I think what the guy Hunt for from Tampa Bay is available. So maybe – Take him first, then you take one of the pitchers that uh whatever their model likes in the in the second round and give them a shot in spring. I could see that happening. But when is the Rule Five Draft going to happen? Uh, December, January, February, March. Well, it's scheduled for December 9th, But you know, if the lockout does happen, which how many times have I said that tonight? Like twelve. <laughs> well, twenty-two <laughs> minutes into the show, and I think I've now referenced lockout at least a dozen times. Let's switch um, to when it happens. <laughs> yes, when it happens. Um, the Rule 5 draft will likely be delayed, it seems, and then we'll have to uh, play the waiting game with that Oof. and many other things. I have to make a meal out of the minor league portion of the Rule 5 draft if they do that <laughs> in its in its place. Yeah. yeah. I'm just And I'm just looking, speaking about, like, 40-man, who's still on it, who survives. Like, there are, what, eight outfielders – on this 40-man roster, like DJ Stewart, Santander, Tyler Nevin, Cedric Mullins, Ryan McKenna, Mateo, Hayes, and Diaz. I know Mateo's kind of, you know, he can kind of jackknife of all trades or whatever, but that's a lot of outfielders. And, like, how much more time in AAA does Tyler Nevin need, uh, you know, if you if you like him? Ryan McKenna doesn't need to be back in AAA. It's stick in the majors or go at this point for McKenna. Like, so there's got to be some movement, I think, with this outfield group at some point. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. There, even if you take out Tyler Nevin, who's really like for first base, third base, DH, and 
Mateo, who's more of an infielder, it seems like. There's still a lot of outfielders with Diaz and Stewart. So I think there's going to have to be something, whether it's a trade or, or non-tender or DFA. Some some movement's going to have to go in that direction. Yeah, I agree. So we'll go a completely different um, spot here, which is this question from David Adams. It also came out of our Patreon chat. Who are each of your two early picks for the number one pick, which I believe he's talking about next summer's uh, amateur draft, which I know we'll be talking about in depth when we get into the spring, but we'll just open that up now and talk very early who we have our eye on for number one. And I'll start with Nick. So you guys know my answer. Uh, anyone listening knows me. Knows chase my answer. for Chase. <laughs> it's Chase DeLauder. Um Yeah, like that's not going to change. And you all know why. Um, Like I don't bother with real like draft research until like mid-February, like a week before the college season starts. But then I just like binge college baseball for a month or so and a month or so until like the regular season Major League Baseball begins. So I'm excited to watch a lot of these college guys um, and learn more about the high school guys, of course. But, you know, I've had a front row seat to DeLauder's career since he stepped foot on Jamie's campus. Um, just got to watch him for like five straight days the other week. Jamie wrapped up their fall schedule. A lot of scouts there each day, and they were impressed. Like this is, I had one scout tell me that he's he's a center fielder, Stonelock. He is a center fielder. I know there's some questions about that because he's a big guy, uh, but he was real smooth and natural out there. They had him in right field some, showed off the cannon of an arm, had a grand slam to dead center. Um, you know, and honestly, like right, the comment there about being underslot, uh, he's playing his way into like the a true one one role. So like I that's I wouldn't call Chase Lar like an underslot pick right now going into the draft. We're still a long way away. Uh so that's gonna shake up tremendously the, the draft stuff. But you know, that's he's playing his way in there. He's a name to to watch closely. Yeah, I w- I'm rooting for him to be the pick just so we can interview him the next day. But I think it'll probably be one of the infielders, Brooks Lee or uh, Jace, Jace Young. I'll go with Jace Young as my pick. Uh, I saw an early mock that had us taking him like before the season even ended last year, and I liked what I saw in that write-up. So as long as everyone performs the way they're expected to, I'll go with Young. I have my eye on Elijah Green, and I think the reason for that is that back around the time of the 2021 draft, Green's name was all you were hearing for who's going to go 1-1 in 2022. And then, like, a lot of players who seem to fall into that pattern of hype, the, you know, temperature seems to have cooled a little bit in terms of him being 1-1. Now we're looking at all these other players, um, you know, a few of which you guys just mentioned. I just still question, though, if he really puts all the tools that he's supposed to have together. Is it going to be hard to pass up on a center fielder who has that much power and is that athletic with the 1-1, especially if the Orioles think that their model for hitters can address the strikeout question? That would be really fascinating to me. And then I'm also curious to see if Drew Jones, the son of Andrew Jones, emerges as either a true 1-1 target or if the Orioles do decide to go under slot, and I don't want to open that can of worms just yet, but if the Orioles do decide to go under slot, could a guy like Jones be a good choice? Athletic, high schooler, hits from the left side, um, seems to have a lot to offer. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, the last two years of doing this, the shape of the hype, hype tracker. It starts with the college guys, and then it seems like the high school guys kind of charge in late, like the Khalil Leo Watson, we didn't really hear much about him until it got closer to the draft. So right now, all we have to go on is is really much the college guys and then the much-hyped uh, Elijah Greens of the world. But 
I'm sure there'll be some people that burst onto the scene, some helium guys, and, and it'll give us some more options to look at. Yeah. It, a lot of that's really based off the, the Cape. I mean, like DeLauder led the Cape in home runs. So of course he's going to get all the hype uh, right now. He's going to skyrocket up the boards. And so guys who performed well on the Cape are going to get a lot of notice right now. And guys who just really flashed in their fall scrimmages, you know, DeLauder had two home runs in two days, uh, back-to-back days. He had home runs. You see these other college guys that get a lot of hype that perform well in, in fall scrimmages. It's going to take some time. We'll see, like I've mentioned before, like this is all going to shake out as the season progresses. And once the high school season gets going, I'm sure you'll hear a lot more Cleo Green when he starts hitting 450-foot bombs against, you know, some 17-year-old kids. So, you know, it's it's going to be fun, though. It's going to be a fun draft to have that 1-1. It's definitely exciting. And I can't wait for the the, the underslot talk and how the Orr is going to ruin this draft as well because how yeah. they don't draft a pitcher <laughs> until the 10th round. It's thinking about six months. We'll be getting ready for that first pick. We'll have Adley Rushman, Grayson Rodriguez on the Major League team. It'll be be a different vibe in uh, Birdland, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And to focus on another topic, and this happened while we were on our break, um, congratulations to the Mesa Solar Sox for their win in the Arizona Fall League, uh, picking up the championship there, getting some contributions throughout the season from Orioles prospects. Logan Gillespie and Nick Vespi both pitched well in the championship game. Gillespie, of course, was just recently added to the 40-man roster. So we wanted to give those guys a shout-out for the good work that they did out there. Greg Collin as well put up uh, good numbers. Cameron Bissop was there. UCL Diaz and Kyle Stowers were both there before getting hurt. And Ramon Rodriguez, the catcher. So let me know if I miss anybody. But I think that that's the contingent of Orioles prospects. And then Tim Gibbons, the hitting coach, was there as well. So congratulations to Mesa on their championship win. Yeah, I'm I'm glad Gillespie and Vespi at least got into that game because it was you know, it was an OK championship game. I don't know if you guys watched it or not, but I think both of those relievers sent like a big message that night. And like, like for Gillespie, it was like, listen to those on the verge guys because they've been talking about me and uh, they're right. Um, dominant inning, like 98 miles an hour. I think he had like the second hardest pitch thrown that night. I didn't go back and look at the ninth inning to see if anybody topped him, but um, he looked really good. Slider was literally bringing guys down to their knees. Uh, so that was really good to see him. 40-man addition, gets a ring. Those guys do get rings, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, so great end of the 2021 for Gillespie. Vespi, though, I think is, is the big conversation there. Like I think he sent a clear message as well, and he sent his message to the rest of the league saying, I'm ready if you need help in the Rule 5 draft. Like, you know, I've seen some people say he doesn't necessarily fit that mold of a Rule 5 draft pick, but, um, you know, this is – Jonathan Mayo made the comment again, like Vespi's a Rule 5 pick waiting to happen. Uh, and when he strikes out three, eight whiffs on 23 pitches, he had a pretty dominant night on MLB Network there. So congratulations to him, and if he does get picked – I'm a fan of his for life, so I'm going to wish him the best of luck, but I really hope he sticks around. Yeah, absolutely. I love seeing the back-to-back Vespi and, and Gillespie. They even rhymes. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, back-to-back uh, three strikeouts each for their inning of work, and yeah, stuff looked great. Gillespie is like pumped up, gets on the 40-man and just starts firing bullets past hitters. It was awesome to see. Um, yeah, and great call, and I think he had a game-winning home run like the night before or earlier in the week or something like that. So yeah, good... Uh, Good outcomes for our guys, even if Diaz and Stowers only made cameos. And uh, Ramon Rodriguez just never stops playing baseball. So <laughs> good for him. You know, he's getting some experience in. So, yeah, it was fun. Fun to see that, even though, like, the two biggest names uh, didn't last too long in the in the league. Did want to shout out Connor Lopritz. I forgot to mention him earlier when we were running down the Orioles. They were in the Arizona Fall League. But, 
Yeah, going back to Gillespie and Vespi, Gillespie, you know, to show that that high 90s fastball, what he's capable of doing, and I think why the Orioles chose to protect him, because that kind of stuff does draw interest in the Bull 5 drafts. I think even in cases where, you know, the regular season numbers might not necessarily reflect how good the stuff is, and that's kind of what happened to Gillespie at Bowie. But, you know, when you see him in that sort of situation out there throwing 97, 98 with the fastball and really pounding the zone as well as he did, that shows, I think, what the Orioles see in him. And Vespi is interesting to me because the stuff is not prototypical strikeout stuff, but yet he has had good strikeout numbers pretty much throughout his career. And he had them last year, even when he struggled in Norfolk a little bit, the strikeout numbers were good. So I have to wonder if there are teams out there who are maybe looking at more than just the velocity because his fastball is you know generally about 90 to 92. And thinking that, you know, this is someone you could put in a middle relief role on opening day next year. And if nothing else, left-hander who can miss bats. Yeah, and speaking of Paul Fry replacements, we could have had one right there and just added him right to the 40-man roster. But I guess they, they just couldn't pull the trigger. I'm sure they were close to doing it. So, yeah, the stuff's good. I mean, it's not blow you away good, but the slider's nice. He definitely can get out lefties uh, at will. So somebody will get a good arm. Hopefully it's the Orioles in the middle of the season sometime. Yeah, I mean, he showed that he was able to get a lot of swing and misses. There's a super high percentage uh, whiff right there in that just that one game alone. But yeah, that one's definitely going to be extremely interesting because I do, like I said, I think if I would have bet on you know, all the players that the Orioles didn't protect, I'd put all my money on Vespi. If one guy were to be selected, I think it would be Vespi. So uh, he's there, but the Orioles either, you know, not as high or they're going to take that calculated risk and we'll see if it uh, pays off, even though they just got burned from the Zach Pop situation. But uh, still yeah. hurts. <laughs> you know, we'll see what goes on there. That's why I really hope the Rule 5 draft. It still happens. I know. I don't know if we got like a final answer on there. I know Baseball America tried to you know put out a piece about what happens if we're locked out. Does the Rule Five draft still happen? I don't know if there's a definite answer on that, or if you guys know or not. But I hope it happens December 9th because I don't have to wait. Last I heard was the Major League portion would not happen. The minor league portion would, but okay. that's not like a confirmed source or anything. I just heard that. I can't even remember where. Yeah, I think I heard something similar, but it seems odd that you would have the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft without having the major league phase, um, even though it's a different, technically really a different pool of eligible players, because if you're protected on the AAA roster, you're not eligible in the minor league phase. So it's kind of a little bit of, there's some layers there to pick apart, but it would seem like at least the major league phase of the Rule 5 draft will be delayed if there's a lockout. True. If there's a lockout, that's the name of this episode for sure. Yes. <laughs> that's so our, we'll go that's our bread and butter. The minor league yeah. phase. It's our bread and butter. <laughs> yes. We'll be good. Yes. Sorry yeah. to uh, Locked On and Orioles and everybody else <laughs> if you got to still come up with content during the lockout. So we'll um, go with another listener question here from uh, David Adams. How do the top uh, Yankees shortstops that uh, they seem to be waiting on compared to the top shortstops? And the Orioles system, are they really that much better or are they just getting the typical Yankees versus Orioles bias? Now, the prospects that David's referring to are Anthony Volpe and, as um, excuse me one second, Oswald Peraza, two of the top prospects in the Yankees system. Uh, and the thought that maybe the Yankees feel like one of those two guys could contribute sometime in the near future or possibly be trade chips if they do splurge on a shortstop later this offseason. So... I'll start with Nick on this question. 
I had no idea who the Yankees minor league shortstops were until you read the names. Uh, Volpe is a name that you know I see a lot, but I've never actually watched him play. So I don't even know who the Yankees major league shortstop is. Like, I don't pay attention to New York. It's not to be Andrew Elton Simmons. Sorry, uh, Yankees fans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's fairly comparable. I think both both pairs of infielders are pretty darn good. I would like to think, just knowing the Orioles system better, that we have more depth at that position, but. When you compare just those top two guys, I think Volpe and Gunnar Henderson seem like they have a similar level of regard <laughs> throughout baseball. And then Peraza and Westberg, maybe Peraza is a little bit higher. So I think we're both doing okay in that regard. But I, I still think Yankees fans would rather have uh, Corey Seager or Carlos Correa. So we'll see if they can get one. I think a lot of prospect rankings probably have Henderson – below those two guys and then Westberg below Henderson. So he would be looking up at the group, but I still think it could turn out to be comparable. Um, you know, I don't know it's necessarily bias creeping in the prospect rankings, but you know, one thing to consider a little bit is just the experience level with these guys in the proximity of the major leagues. Maybe the feeling is that Volpe especially could get to the majors a little bit faster, but we'll see. Yeah. Just don't know enough about, other teams' organizations, unfortunately. Maybe that's something uh, with this lockout I could uh, dive into. MLB Pipeline has Volpe at 2023 ETA, which is the same as Gunnar Henderson. Henderson does have that little bit of time in A that Volpe does not have, but across the board, Volpe's number is a little bit better between low A and high A last year. I know he's got a little more speed to his game, maybe a little bit less power, so... I don't think they're one-to-one comparable, but I like our guys, as Buck Showalter used to say. So let's ride with Westberg and Henderson over here. Yeah, exactly, and see where it takes the Orioles. So we'll talk now about an article that is over on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com because it's something we get questions a lot about. And this article, honestly, and it's not just because it was written by a friend of the show, Stephen Loftus. It's honestly the best article I've read on this topic uh, since Adley Rutzman enter the Orioles farm system, which is do the Orioles extend Adley Rutzman? And if so, how do they do it? And what Steven did in this piece um, is he laid out three different scenarios for how the Orioles could extend Rutzman, what the average annual value might look like, uh, who the comparables would be. And it was interesting because Steven looked across the board, not just at catchers to formulate this. And it was really, it's very in-depth, uh, much more in-depth than what I think we can do justice with in our discussion. So I would encourage you to go read it at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com if you haven't read it already. But uh, we thought we would take a little bit of time tonight to discuss that because our listeners do ask questions about whether or not Adley Rutzman is somebody the Orioles could extend. And we have talked to people like Eric Longenhagen about that same topic before. So I'll start with Nick on this. Looking at the article, was there a particular scenario for an extension that jumped out at you as something you could see happening if the Orioles would pursue an extension with Rutzman? Yeah, so he laid out three options, you know, buy out the pre-free agent years and looking at his numbers. He said, so in his mind, you're probably looking at six years, $52 million uh, to get Rutzman to free agency. Second option was buy out uh, the pre-free agent years plus some options. And he said, you're looking at probably around six years, 70 million guaranteed with the potential to grow to nine years, $126 million. If all three options were picked up about $22 million a year in those option years. 
And then he says option three is the Tatis style mega deal, uh, which he, he comped at about uh, 12 years, $200 million. So um, of course, like I am team player uh, and get your money. Uh, I love seeing all these contract numbers roll in, get your money, pay these guys. So the Tatis mega deal, uh, of course, would be the most attractive. Uh, I think a lot of Orioles fans would be very happy with that, but like, you look at even Fernando Tatis, like he's already had more injury concerns. There's talk like, is he a center fielder? Is he going to stick at shortstop because the injuries, they don't know. Um, I'd stop paying attention to the Padres at the end of the year when they kind of fell off. So I don't know if that discussion is still going on or not, but you look at Ali Rutschman, he's a catcher, shorter shelf life, a lot more risk. And so like, I think if Rutschman was an outfield prospect, give him the mega deal. But I think the the middle option probably works uh, best uh, for me. That's the one that stood out to me. Like, you lock Rutschman down, um, you know, it gives the Orioles some financial flexibility, and it gives Adley Rutschman paid over the next couple of years, six years or so. And at that time, like when that contract is up, if he thinks he can get more money elsewhere, like he has the option to go and get paid elsewhere uh, in free agency. So. And if he sticks around with the Orioles, the Orioles get him at a bit of a discount. I think Steven had projected at that point, you know, looking six years down the road, Rutschman being worth about 30 million a year and the Orioles getting him for about 22 million a year uh, for those three years. So, you know, I think that one is probably the most fair because you're not going to see the Orioles lock themselves into another Chris Davis style contract right now. Yeah, absolutely. I like that middle option as well. The idea of like an eight or nine year deal sounds good to me. Rutschman, like you said, he's a, he's a catcher. He's already 24 years old or will be uh, by the time the season starts. So not exactly super young like the Tatises of the world, and it's a very demanding position. I know they'll give him plenty of time at the H and first base, but still. And uh, I hear some pretty uh, ignorant comments going around about how, hey, you might as well trade. If you're trading Mullins and Means, you might as well start looking at deals for Adley. Get him out of here. Get, get some uh, younger prospects. And it's like, or just sign him to a, a nice long extension and start the team. And by the way, Sim Contribute is cracking me up in the comments, so shout out to you. I think the, the second scenario is probably the best one. I did wonder, though, with the first one, which I agree with Stephen is not ideal for you know a few reasons, but one of the things I wonder is could you, say, three years into that six-year deal, talk about another extension, but you also run the risk of losing a lot of leverage and having that deal cost you more money in the long run. So I think that second one is probably best for both sides. Now, we talked touched on this a little bit with the option of the third scenario, doing the Fernando Tatis Jr. or now Wander Franco style mega deal. You know, sign him for 11, 12 years now, you know, guarantee him over 300 million probably or something a little bit less than that. Do you have concerns when you look at the fact that some of the best catchers uh, in the game over the last decade or two, really in Joe Maurer and Buster Posey, both retired fairly young, that maybe Rutzman's self-life as a catcher, if you were to give him a 10-year deal, might really be six years, and that after that 10 years, that might be it, as far as him being you know close to a top-level contributor or even you know a little bit better than above-average player? I think if they locked it in for 10 years, that would at least give them a a path to know how to manage it a little bit better. You know, we're going to have them for 10 years, so let's just have them catch half the games, maybe not 120 games. We'll have them catch 80 games a year, try to manage it a little bit more. But it's definitely a concern at all times for a catcher like that. It's just so demanding. Maybe you try to transition him to a first base full time at, at a certain point, halfway to three quarters through the, the contract to try to manage it. But 
definitely a concern, but it wouldn't scare me. Sign him. Let's get him. Let's get him to stick around here for a long time. Yeah, and you know, Buster Posey. I'm wondering if that's like a little bit of a unique situation because like, then he sat out 2020 because of COVID, and then maybe he got a little taste there of what you know post baseball life is like, and said, you know, I'm, I'm gonna had one more really good year, uh, and I got a couple you know really high MVP votes from some San Francisco writers, but um, you know he had a good year, and he says, all right, I'm gonna go, you know. I'm just going to go ahead and, and call it a career now. So I wonder if, you know, COVID didn't happen and he didn't have that 2020, would he still be playing as a first baseman in San Francisco? I don't know, but yeah. And you wonder like how much is that catching position going to change um, over the next couple of years as well? So I don't know. I just don't see him, you know, I don't see the mega deal happening at all. That's way too long for a catcher right now. Th- those guys, you, you never know what could happen. We don't want to think anything bad about Adley Rutschman right now and talk about injuries in the future, but like, they're the tools of ignorance for a reason. Like it's, it's a crazy position to play and it takes an extreme toll on your body. So paying a catcher $300 million over 12, 14 years, I, I don't see the Orioles doing that at all. Yeah. And I think that's why in general, we haven't seen a ton of extensions for catchers. Buster Posey got one fairly early in his career as did Salvador Perez. I think Perez got one was less than a full year of service time with Kansas city. And obviously that worked out for the Royals and Posey worked out for the giants, but there are, you know, real risk factors there. And I think that, you know, if, you know, like what we talked about earlier, if Rutzman was an outfielder or played a less demanding position, you would probably go for the mega deal now. And I'll put this scenario out there. It feels like at some point we are going to have real concrete rumors on an extension about Rutzman just because that is a track with a young player. And I would have to think that, although a lot has changed uh, since Manny Machado was early in his major league career, that the Angelos family maybe will have learned that lesson a little bit and realized that there's a reason why you do these extensions early, early when you have an elite prospect like this and get Rutzman locked up. Now, would you guess that those rumors start between now and when Rutzman makes his major league debut, or do you think he comes up, plays his rookie season, maybe even plays his first full season in 2023 if he's not on the opening day roster this year, then you start to hear about it a little bit. I think off season this time next year, it's like really starting to heat up. You know, if, if it's not going to happen, I feel like pre arbitration, then I don't think it's going to happen. And who knows after the new CBA, what, you know, how soon will he be a free agent? If they switch it to age 28, then we only have him for what, four or five years. So yeah, I think after the 2022 season, as long as he, you know, it gets adjusted to major league play, as we all think he will, then that's when I think you'll start to really hear the rumors swirling. Yeah. See what this new CBA looks like. Get all the details and everything with there. Get all that settled. Let him get his feet wet in the major leagues. And then we can talk business where, and I think, I genuinely think, I'm not drinking that much Kool-Aid here. Like I genuinely think next year, next off season, we're talking about real free agent signings. So I'm wondering if maybe, you know, you kick off the offseason with a big, you know, Adley Rutschman extension, would that signal to like some other free agents like, all right, the Orioles are ready. The Orioles are going in. They're ready to start winning now. Maybe they'll feel more comfortable at signing a deal with Baltimore. Like, I don't know if that has any impact or not. That was a you know, thought that comes to my mind. But that could be a big kickoff to a pretty big winter for the Orioles, given him and his extension. So I, we'll have to see, though. I don't know. And I feel like it would signal, you know, and it seems like to me that, Finally, with the the power going to the Suns, that the Angelos are just hired the guy they think was right for the job and let him do the best job that he thinks he can do. 
So if they sign Adley to an extension, then that just signals to me that they are letting Michael Elias do his thing, and and that's part of the part of the job. Yeah, you don't want to just make statements with moves, but I think that there is a reason that you want to go in and try to make a decision like that early because you do want to send a message to the rest of baseball that we have invested a lot of time and money into basically building this rebuild around a core group of players with Adley Rutzman basically being at the center of that group. And he's going to be here for the foreseeable future. And we're going to build this team around him. And, you know, you could even start to, you know, do make moves towards that now, if you wanted, you know, if they do want to talk about an extension for John means, or they want to look even at giving Cedric Mullins a contract, just something to show that they are investing in the core that they have. I think that's going to give free agents confidence to sign here because, Right now, if you were approached, if you're Carlos Correa and the Orioles offer you 10 years, $330 million, you might turn it down just because, well, 2022 and 2023 don't look very good. And where's the money going to be to lock up uh, the rest of this team that you know, you're supposed to be building around me? That's a pretty good point. Yeah, and I like that. I think maybe... You know, maybe later in the year, we, we start it slow. That John Means extension does happen. You solidify a rotation piece there. Rodriguez comes up. He has a good rookie year. Uh, talk extension about him later on, but you've got two solid pieces right there in your rotation. You lock down your catcher. Let's hope Mullins. I mean, Mullins still scares me. I'm not going to lie uh, about you know what his career path looks like. But if you have two young core pieces in the outfield, this offense, the Orioles offense is actually like, it's fun to watch. It's pretty good offense, I think. It's a solid core there. And you lock that down with Adley Rutschman as the main centerpiece, the, the bridge that brings all this together. I think free agents are going to want to come to Baltimore at that point. They're going to realize they're serious, and we can finally start talking about winning baseball in Baltimore. Like it's We're that close, but again, this offseason, though, is going to be another of setting up for that offseason, which I know fans are, are done. They're done with it, and I, I get it. Yeah, and I really think they should, and maybe they will lock in John Means before spring training or before the season starts. A six-year deal, $52 million. I think there was some other left-hander that just signed a six-year extension, kind of similar uh, in that regard to kind of set the, the tone on that. But um, lock him in there and then extend Adley after next year. And maybe even at that point, Ryan Mountcastle, you want to just lock him in through his arbitration years, stabilize his money, and and, and you're off to the races. So a question here from Sim Contribute. Um, high free agent salaries scary for O's when they attempt to flip the switch. So do you think that that is going to be an area where the Orioles freeze a little bit? Like we're ready to start kind of building this young nucleus and we're ready to add talent, but we're not ready to go after that top tier free agent. We're free agents. Free agency is always a risk with that. I feel like, you know, prices are constantly going up and it's just, it, that's why it's not really what I would do if like the Texas Rangers are doing, they're kind of setting their foundation through free agency. To me, that's more, all right, we know we're going to probably, this player's not going to be worth as much as we're paying them, but hopefully it's just enough to put us over the edge and to play off world series contention. So I don't, I don't care when you're going to sign your free agents. It's going to be scary with uh, how much the salaries are going to cost. Yeah. I will say, I am curious to see, like do the Orioles dish out a lot of those big contracts when they're ready, when they have that nucleus of prospects that they are going to keep, that they like in place. Uh, and when, are they going to start dishing out a lot of those contracts 
or like, are we headed towards the Tampa Bay route? Are they going to follow that model more? That is, we don't know. Um, we're not at that point yet, but when we do get to that point, I'm interested to see which path uh, Michael Elias takes. That, that, is, yeah, that is a huge question because it's kind of like we've said, we're blending the Tampa Bay style and the Houston Astros style, but uh, when it comes to money, what are we more, the Tampa Bay or Houston? Yeah. Hopefully it's Houston. Yeah, we hope. I mean, it's hard. It's so hard to tell, and that's one of the big mysteries of the Michael Elias regime. I can better guess what the 2022 draft class might look like right now. And I haven't even started researching the draft yet. Then I can tell you how they're going to spend in free agency two or three years down the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's the biggest question right now, as far as turning that, turning that corner. I mean, I don't know. I guess you could look at, I'm sure a lot of people will look at recent history and say, well, you're obviously leaning towards Tampa Bay. I mean, look, they're not even spending money. We're another year into this rebuild and, you know, Matt Harvey and Felix Hernandez, like at this rate, are those going to be like better signings than what we're going to get this off season? Like this is, I don't know. I, I hope not, but um, you know, there's a lot of talk, but uh, the talk that I get, um, I get the vibe from that discussion that like, that's what it's going to be this off season. And so you wonder like, are they going to be able to flip that switch that quickly and just start dishing out you know, the Texas Rangers style money next off season or even two years from now? I don't know. That's a big leap for them to take. And uh, another question is, is Elias keeping the payroll so low because that's what the Angelos want him to do? Or is it because he just doesn't want to commit much money right now so that when the time comes, he has as much available as possible? That's another thing on my mind. Yeah. I will say that like whether we, when we get to that point, that will be a whole other discussion. And if the money doesn't start flowing, sure, I get it. I get where the outrage is going to come from. But for right now, like, I mean, there was no, we've gone over this countless times, you know, and I see people defend it countless times online. Like we have an international presence now. We're getting legitimate international prospects. There's a legitimate analytics department scouting. This whole thing is modernized. Uh, the back end is really all coming together. So there is a foundation that's set, setting this organization on a long-term path to success. You know, this isn't the Rangers where we're buying all these guys with, without much of a minor league system. Uh, we're setting up for the long-term success. So at least, I take comfort in that right now. Free agency and everything else, we'll see when we have this discussion next offseason. Yeah. Uh, the Rangers are getting all their cosmetic surgery to try to look prettier. We have a nice, healthy core, and we're going to try to naturally uh, increase our appeal. That's a terrible analogy. <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> Before we wrap up tonight, uh, we should probably address like what has been happening in baseball really over the last 24 hours, which is – a lot of free agents trying to sign and signing before the lockout. Max Serger is off the market. Uh, Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager off the market. Robbie Ray, the reigning American League Cy Young Award winner, has found a new home. Kevin Gaussman has as well. And I'm going to just throw out this topic because we've now mentioned it a few times. The Rangers, who were really bad last year, have been really bad for the last few years. And don't have the farm system that approaches what the Orioles have, have now decided to go out and sign Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager, and John Gray. Uh, Simeon and Seager both getting, you know, hundreds of million dollars over the course of their contracts. John Gray ends up with a four-year deal. The Rangers are obviously trying to take a much different approach to get back to contention, and they think they're going to buy their way there. And I'll just – 
throw this out more as a general philosophical question, but if you want to address whether you think it's actually going to work for the Rangers specifically, you can. Do you still think that that sort of approach works in baseball or can work? Or do you think there's a reason why most of the rebuilds that we've seen over the last five, seven years have trended closer to what the Orioles are doing? And I'll start with Nick on this. I I get it. Uh, and I mean, it is a strategy. It's a path you can take. I don't think there's just like what the Orioles are doing. It's a path you can take. But uh, it's more entertaining for fans. It's going to sell tickets. Fans, Those Rangers fans are going to want to watch those games. They're itching for opening day, I feel like, now, even if they really don't have much of a pitching staff still at this point. Uh, but like, I just, I just look at teams like the Orioles, like what the Pirates are doing as well, what the Tigers have done. And you know, a lot of people like to point, you know, compare Tigers and Orioles and how the Tigers are probably just a year ahead of the Orioles in their rebuild. So we're following that path. Like I like what those organizations have done and where they've set themselves up at. Um, so I don't, I, I don't like that approach because like, what if John Gray, now that he's out of Colorado, what if he's a completely different pitcher and he completely falls apart and that's gone? You know, it's, what if this doesn't work out? Like Bob said, there's a lot of risk there. You know, this is, it's, it's big risk. And so I, I prefer, I'm a more minimal risk type guy. So I'm going to build my steady foundation and build from there personally. Yeah, I think it probably can work in the right circumstances. Like if you're in the NL Central where it seems like there's never a really good team, then go ahead and buy a Stars and Scrubs type of team and hopefully they stay healthy and it's enough to get you into the playoffs and then anything could happen from there. But for me, I look at the Rangers and I still don't even see a 500 team. I, they have nice up-the-middle defense. John Gray is is there. He's, he's a solid guy, it seems like, but he's not. it reminds me of like the Ubaldo, Jimenez, Alex Cobb type signings that the Orioles made, so. Yeah, I don't know. It's not the way I would go if I was them, but especially in that division, <laughs> they're up with some really tough competition. But yeah. we'll see if it works out for them. And, I mean, throw this out there. It was a fellow BSL contributor, Matt Corey. Uh, he tweeted out, like, this playoff expansion, playoffs possibly going to 14 teams, like, that's why you see the Mariners and Rangers. That's why you're seeing some of these teams throw out all this money and the Yankees, the Red Sox, like, they've been – Dodgers, they've been so quiet – like why spend all that extra money when like you're in the playoffs, you're there. Uh, but these other teams now see that opportunity and forget the long-term rebuild. Let's just go now. Let's try to get that ring right now. Cause once you get into the playoffs, like it's anybody's game, you're, you're all zero, zero. So I, I do get that approach. And maybe, maybe a team like the Rangers, maybe that's what they're thinking at this point. They know it's coming ahead next year and they're planning for that instead. Yeah. That's an excellent point. That is a great point. And it will be interesting to see if when expanded playoffs happen, uh, and whether or not we start to see the shift towards that a little bit where maybe rather than playing for that draft pick, so to speak, you're now kind of playing to the margins every year because if you're around 500 and you pick up a free agent or two the following year, that does hit, you're probably in the playoffs. You know, you could be an 84-win team and be in a 14-team playoff. Comfortably. <laughs> it's a lot of teams. Seven teams is a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. There's going to be a lot to unpack this offseason. And while a lot is happening, we're really barely getting started, not just because of the looming likelihood of a lockout, but everything that could result from it. Uh, we will be back next week. Lockout or no lockout, we will be back next week and we will be back every week with uh, coverage here at On the Verge. Um, in the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. For all of the latest Ravens, Orioles, 
college sports, high school sports coverage, and more. Be sure to join the message board and participate in discussion with uh, fellow readers and BSL contributors. Uh, for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.